This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com. Good morning, Memphis. You're listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio 91.7 FM. Meanwhile in Memphis is a program dedicated to conversations that celebrate the organizations, initiatives, and people that are shaping Memphis for the better. This morning, your hosts are myself, Jamie Bowlerup, and Anna Thompson. Uh, Today, we're going to have a conversation um, with two people that I admire very much. Uh, We're going to talk about how uh, literacy rates impact poverty and vice versa. We'll be chatting with local leaders Sam O'Brien, Jared Barnett, um, and uh, talking to them and talking about their organizations that are working to dismantle the systems of generational poverty in Memphis. So, Anna, will you uh, tell us a little bit about our guests today? Absolutely. Thought you'd never ask. Mm -hmm. Um, So both Jared Barnett and Sam O'Brien have actually been guests on this podcast previously. So we will link their episodes in the show notes for you. So you can go back and hear a little bit about them um, from that. But Jared Barnett joined Slingshot as CEO in October 2019. Um, He brings his experience with disruptive innovation, strategic planning, organization building, and operational efficiency to Slingshot. Slingshot's mission is to ignite a movement that revolutionizes the way that we fight poverty in Memphis. And Sam O'Brien is the executive director of Literacy Mid-South. Over the last 10 years, all in the Memphis area, Sam has been a sought-after community partner and thought leader in the nonprofit sector. Since being in this role at Literacy Mid-South, Sam has led the organization towards record-breaking success. And Sam is also a 2023 TEDx Memphis speaker. Um, So we will be linking his TED Talk in the show notes as well. It is titled From Desert to Oasis, Literacy as Liberation. And I would highly encourage you to kind of drop down into the show notes and listen to that prior to this conversation. I think it'll give you some great context. But if not, no matter, you can do it after the fact. Yeah. (laughs) And it's awesome. Um, so without further ado, please join us in welcoming Sam and Jared to our studio. Welcome, Sam and Jared. Hey. Hey, how y'all doing? Doing great. I'm good. Wow, two people I very much admire here before us, celebrities. I know. I'm gonna give Jamie a moment just to soak in your awesomeness and and I will ask each of you to kind of introduce yourself a little bit so that the listening audience can familiarize themselves with your voice. Um, and just say your name and your what you do for a living. What, oh. your, what, what, what your profession is. Sure. Uh, uh, I am Sam O'Brien uh, and I am the executive director for Literacy Mid-South and uh, uh, the organization Literacy Mid-South, we seek to provide literacy su- uh, support services to individuals across the lifespan. And I'm Jared Barnett. I'm the CEO of Slingshot Memphis. Uh, Slingshot is an organization that's trying to revolutionize how we fight poverty by making it more evidence-based and helping us measure and analyze what's effective so we can support what works. And if it's not working, know how to make it better. Oh, no wonder you're in awe, Jamie. I like it. Two excellent organizations. Um, Great. So, I mean, obviously we invited y'all in today because there are a lot of intersections in your work. And so we'll we'll get to some of that. But can we just, let's just start off with a simple definition. Um, Sam, what is literacy? Can you just give us a quick definition of that? 
Ooh, that's a tough one. I was about to say, um, I don't feel like that's it? a softball. Uh, I, feel yeah. like that's, I feel like that's... <laughs> yeah, that's you threw the heat on that yeah. one. Yeah, um, easy definition. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I sometimes I say that uh, a definition of literacy, it can be subjective because it to me, it depends on where the work is happening. Uh, when we think about Memphis, we think about Memphis's history. Uh, literacy for a city like Memphis really speaks to the ways that individuals can navigate and communicate what they need to do to live their life to the most, you know, to, I guess to the, to its highest potential. Um, and so whether <clears throat> for, for a third grader, it may be reading a book from cover to cover because those things are captured uh, on you know, state assessments and you know, uh, standardized testing. Uh, but, you know, for an individual who may be an early career professional, right, um, they may want to get additional certifications on the job that they currently have. And that requires a new navigation or, or a new exploration of those literacies that allow them to do that, whether it's an advanced degree or you know, Six Sigma certification or something of the sort. So literacy, again, it becomes subjective because it really thinks it really talks to the ways that an individual across the lifespan uh, can navigate where they are to get to that desired end or the desired next step. I love that your definition of it um, encompasses that literacy covers more than just reading and writing, that there is, you know, financial literacy, there's digital literacy, there's all of those other things that are sometimes kind of left out of the equation. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not just, it is uh, reading and writing, but it is also competence and mastery of a subject. Exactly right. Yeah, because I would just assume like probably like many people that it's just it's literally just reading like i don't i did not have an expanded idea of that definition well i know that um there are a lot of workshops on financial literacy so i at least knew it applied there oh. <laughs> <laughs> i need to go to those <laughs> uh, i think I, I love the word opportunity when it goes with literacy as well because i think building up what you were saying sam right it's really around literacy can be something that opens opportunities because i'm able to read write be financially savvy enough to do certain things, or it can be the opposite, right? And it can be an impediment. If I'm right. not able to read at a certain level, I can't take those technical training courses or certifications, and therefore I'm kind of capped in what I'm able to do. And so I think opportunity is something that really goes with me when I think about literacy is mm-hmm. um, it's really what unlocks a lot of opportunity um, across the spectrum, not just can I enjoy a book from cover to cover, but does it open up the opportunities in my life to really flourish? That actually um, ties into what we were going to ask you next. So thank you for that, Jared. Um, <laughs> perfect segue. Yeah, perfect like, segue. He threw himself in alley oop. I know, right? <laughs> um, how a person's socioeconomic status impacts their opportunities for learning and how on the flip side those are connected. It's like which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Like does literacy impact the poverty? Does poverty impact the literacy all the way around? Yeah, the, the unfortunate reality is both. And so, um, you know, it, it's clear when you look at the the data here in Memphis that if you're growing up in a neighborhood that is underserved or has less less resources, your likelihood of getting the same quality of education as other parts of, of the town are not the same. You're just not going to get that same quality of education. And therefore, when you see literacy scores and other things, students in those schools tend to suffer more. Uh, it's not because they're inherently bad readers, but the the ecosystem around them is not as strong to help them develop that that reading literacy um, at a young age, uh, and then the flip side is true too. If you are find yourself in uh, a situation you know where you're not as literate, uh, it, it like we talked about it caps things. And I think one of the really 
powerful things we've come across in some of our, our work at Slingshot is that at least 100,000 people in Memphis who are experiencing poverty are probably not able to pursue technical training or other types of career opportunities because of their lower literacy levels, either because they don't have a high school diploma or GED, or even if they do have a high school diploma and GED, they aren't at a sufficient reading literacy to be able to really pursue and, and comprehend those materials that would allow them to progress. And so it, it does both, it, it, uh, un, unfortunately. And that's why I think it's such an important factor to address here as a community and make sure that we do something about it, which I think also is one of the cool things about Literacy Mid-South is that they don't just focus on one age group, mm-hmm. but they, yeah. they cover that spectrum. And obviously, even to kind of add to that, um, you know, there's there's tons of research that shows that uh, a child's um, primary caretaker, that is really what determines, uh, I would say, the the academic aptitude and trajectory of the child. So if mom, who is in many cases the primary caretaker, care, excuse me, caretaker, um, if mom is uh, an advanced degree professional to that point, that child will likely, you know, knock it out the park, will do quite well. Uh, but if mom is, you know, a uh, high school dropout, we also see that generational sort of pattern when it comes to, uh, you know, that, that I would say that literacy generational pattern um, in, in, in homes that are reflective of that. So, you know, many to, to Jerry's point, you know, this is why we focus on our work across the lifespan, because, yes, like, don't get me wrong, we really want third graders. <laughs> to, to have the best third grade opportunities to be promoted in all of those things. But we know that's only one side of the work if we're not working with parents as well. And what, how do you deal with the, I would imagine there's a stigma attached to people of a certain age who, you know, might need that extra support in, in any of these areas of literacy, but there's a stigma attached. There's a time component. I was about to say, yeah, it's generally not a choice. Right. Yeah. Right. It's there's a product of the environment around you. There's the need. Yeah. There's so much working, you know, against that person. Like how do you interrupt that? How do you help provide services for older, you know, for adults who are dealing with this? So I think uh, what makes our program unique, our, our adult learning program, is that one, uh, we're not we're not a program that does uh, a GED or a high set or any sort of high school equivalency. We seriously meet adults where they are, and we identify that thing that they wish to do. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, it ranges. It, I mean, when I say there's there's no like typical adult that comes to us for our services. You know, we're talking about there may be a grandparent that simply wants to be able to keep up with their seven-year-old because the seven-year-old is, you know, learning and reading at this accelerated pace. So the grandparent wants to, you know, be a little bit ahead so they can continue to read to their grandchild. It may be a person that, to your point, has a high school diploma, but then they've learned that, well, I want to do, um, I want to be certified in, you know, HVAC and things of this sort. So help me navigate the testing and the the processes that needs to happen there. Uh, So it literally comes down to, what that adult has identified and how we're able to meet that need. Um, most programs, you know, when you think about a Goodwill Excel Center, you know, they are GED granting uh, organizations. And I think the adults that come to those spaces have identified that as their goal. And that's the organization to help them do that. Um, but for us, a lot of our adults have these, you know, uh, sort of specific, unique things they wish to do. Uh, they may not require that, uh, that GED or anything of that sort. And they come to us and they we work with them for as long as we need to until they get to where, again, where they need to be. How does that, how do you develop curriculum that is so tailor-made? Um, 
it so it it varies. Uh, so okay. again, like when I again with with the adult, it it varies. There are okay. some adults that we that come in, and we may use a workbook that they follow over the course of time. Okay, um, because that's where that that's where their literacy skill set may be, and we and we we walk them through that. Uh, there are other adults where you know some of them are like, well, you no, know, I used to read the Bible when I was younger. So we'll start there and we'll just kind of work through the Bible, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, chapter to chapter, because that's what that's that familiarity that they have. And then there are some who are like, you know, I'm living life, I'm paying bills, I'm doing these yeah. things. So we find those 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 points that we call these these everyday sort of literacies where it may be reading uh, your your bill that comes from MLG and W. It may be uh, reading, you know, uh, the deed to your home or your apartment lease. Yeah. Those sorts of things that they navigate all the time. Uh, and then oftentimes those adults are parents. And so it may mean navigating and reading the notices that come from school so you know what the school is looking for. So every adult is different. Uh, and we again, we we, j- we try to find those things that they come into come into contact with more often than not. And we push those as the literacies that you know, we want them to you know, be a bit more familiar with. That makes sense. Okay. Because I was curious how you like help so many people through the lifespan. Um, that's tricky from an organizational standpoint to be able to have trainers who are uh, skilled in so many competencies. But that's a true asset to the city for sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Sam, you and Literacy Mid-South are, are working with individuals and schools as well and Mm -hmm. and you're working directly in the community and jared you and slingshot kind of have a different approach where you're helping the nonprofits who are directly their work is combating poverty in the community can you talk a little bit about how how you go about that how do you work how would you work with an organization a nonprofit like literacy mid-south yeah um funny thing is we'll be starting that actually in Right now, Literacy Mid South. So we're in that process of starting <laughs> right. to work together. That's awesome. So, uh, really so it's very excited front of about mind. that. Yeah. Yes, timely. Uh, but I think the the concept for how Slingshot works is right. We don't provide the services ourselves. But we want to help empower the organizations that are with the information that we can share. And so, a couple things that we are able to do is we're able to go in and look at what are all the different benefits they're providing for the the people they serve, and we can monetize that and put a dollar amount to that. So that you can start to understand what things are creating the greatest benefits for the people you work with, um, and how much does it cost to produce those benefits, so you can understand is you know what's the return on investment of that, and so it allows organizations to have an understanding of from an analytical perspective what are they doing that's helping the, the people they work with systemically versus anecdotally, mm-hmm. um, and so it, it supplements that. Uh, the other thing we we do that's similar to kind of what we were just talking about is we'll look at the research about what curriculums, what uh, practices help produce the best outcomes. And we have people on our team who are very good at doing literature reviews and looking at the research that's been done. And I'm not great at that. I know that's (laughs) not a normal thing that you would find in a nonprofit because you're worried about delivering programming. And so we're able to to bring that skill set to these organizations and say, hey, let us go study this for you. And here's what we found in our review of the research that, you know, these things tend to be aligning really well with what best practices would be considered. Here's a couple things that might be opportunities to enhance the outcomes you're creating if you were to employ these two or three things to supplement what you're already doing. And so for us, it's all about how do you, um, you know, similar to how, Sam, you were talking about with the people you serve, it's how do we help the nonprofits that we get the opportunity to work alongside with? 
understand where are they today and how do we become more impactful for the people that we're serving so that we offer the greatest benefits we can for the focus of, of that organization. And that's one reason that we work with a wide variety of organizations. So we definitely are focused on alleviating poverty, but we realize that there's a lot of interconnected factors that contribute to that. It's not just a job. It's not just housing stability, but it's a variety of things. And unfortunately what happens is any one of those things can sabotage the benefits of the rest, right? So yeah. you might have great transportation in Memphis, but if you're not able to read at a certain level, you can't access jobs with that transportation you otherwise could. Or vice versa, if you've got phenomenal education, but no transportation to where these you know, living wage jobs are, you, that education mm -hmm. doesn't get to be fully realized because you can't access the benefits of it. And so we try and work across organizations so that we can share what we're learning with individual organizations, but then also share what we're learning across organizations and the communities so that we can collectively get better as well. Mm. And and if y'all haven't checked out um, Slingshot's website and their the impact reports from working with previous nonprofit organizations, I highly suggest you do. They're really, really cool. Um, and the data is so, the data and the research that y'all provide nonprofits is so vital because, I mean, having worked at a lot of nonprofits, that is usually one of our biggest obstacles is the data yeah. that what do we okay we've collected some data it was hard to collect and now what do we do with it you know so coming in and and providing that support um it's really awesome my, my beef so i spent most of my career in the for-profit space i was a management consultant and i helped big corporations make more money and we spend all of these resources when it comes to making money on data analytics all these different things to try and make more money but then when we think about all the work we do to try and help individuals and improve the quality of life of people, we don't see that same investment or that same rigor sometimes going into it. And so, you know, for me, the whole concept is if we're going to spend that much effort and time and, and energy on making money, why would we not do that to try and help improve people's lives? Um, and so it's, it's slingshots trying to play a small part in helping bring that rigor and that those practices from the for-profit space, and then supplement that with the heart that's needed, right, to, to provide the social services and the care that really transform people's lives. I love that. We greatly appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what are some of the kind of highlight moments that you've seen at Slingshot from the data where nonprofits you've been working with have been able to move the needle in poverty? Yeah, a variety of different ways. So I think it's fun to see an organization that is as effective as they hoped or especially more effective than they thought, where they're realizing like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that we were having these kind of benefits. Um, I think one that stands out is um, the Purdue Center of Hope uh, is a, a shelter that provides um, shelter for women in housing instability situations. But what's unique is they allow the children to remain with their mothers, where in most cases, That's the huge. shelters, yeah. the children have to go to the foster care system or another place. And so in working with them and studying uh, that, that organization, we helped them realize that the benefits they were creating were disproportionately greater for the youth than they were for the mothers, because the mothers had alternatives they could go to. There weren't alternatives for the youth to stay with their mothers and then receive all the benefits that come from that. And so it was just neat to be like, oh, okay, I didn't realize this. And so to see how they've made some changes there um, and, a, and said, hey, well, let's bring some more of that in-house. Let's hire some people to help with these services uh, for the youth was really neat. Um, and so it's being able to kind of see, I call them these light bulb moments, right? Where it's like, oh, yeah, like we're doing something great. Let's do more of it. Or you know what? Like 
we didn't realize that wasn't as impactful as we thought or that there's another organization just two doors down that's doing that same thing. Yeah. Let's really focus on what we do so well and make sure that we continue to do that exceptionally um, and then just help connect people as needed with these other services that they might need so that they can really do what they do well. And so it's fun to be able to see those light bulbs go on and see organizations really embrace the unique things that they are able to to really contribute to the people they serve um, and do that at, at a you know an exceptional level because i think for me the, a lot of fighting poverty is is around the quality more so than the quantity right because mm-hmm. i can serve a lot of people with a little bit and they're still going to be experiencing poverty just a little bit better <laughs> or i can really help some people transform their lives and that's where i think you break the cycle is when you get to the point where you've transformed people's lives you've broken that cycle of poverty they're now on pathways to prosperity and and to be able to thrive because then they bring their children, other family members with them. You start to see this halo effect. Um, And so that's, I think, the fun part of seeing that that happen with the organizations we get the opportunity to work with. I think what's so special about Slingshot and the data um, in speaking just from nonprofits that I've worked at is that the anecdotal Information is usually there. It's the the fact-driven data information that is so hard to come by. And so I would have guessed that the children in that example would have fared better because they are with their mothers. But I wouldn't have had the, the numbers that would have proven that to either, let's say, a funder or whoever. Um, so it's nice to go from that warm and fuzzy to, like, this is actually affecting the bottom line here, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of both, right? I, yes. I love both. <laughs> no, I think, I think both. I think the have data their by place. itself yeah. sometimes can actually be detrimental because yes. you forget that these are people we're talking right. about. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and at the same time, if it's just the anecdotes, then you're cherry picking examples, and we don't know if that's actually what everyone else is experiencing. And so when you combine the two, I think it's where you get it the really magic. powerful. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Does does that resonate with your work at Literacy Mid South as well, Sam? The um, kind of what Jared was talking about about interrupting the cycle, but sometimes it feels like on a it's quality over over quantity it's like transforming maybe smaller groups of people's lives or i i don't know if that's translating exactly what you were saying but yeah sure so for one we we are a big fan of the warm and fuzzies um, <laughs> same here you um, this. Uh, but you know one of the reasons you know we <clears throat> wanted to do this work with slingshot is to really have an understanding i would say a more comprehensive complete understanding of how our work uh, fits within this poverty alleviation model. You know, there are tons of examples and tons of research that speaks to, again, in, you know, increased reading levels, increased literacy levels, and what that means for a person's earning potential. But we really wanted to see if the work that we were doing specifically lends itself to those sorts of outcomes. So when we think about the work that we're doing, you know, we're always thinking about continuous improvement, um, but sometimes we don't always know what that looks like. Uh, and and sometimes, you know, uh, we are performing the duties of the grants that have been given to us. Absolutely. Uh, so <laughs> you're speaking our uh, language. <laughs> right. so, so, of course, you know, in being creative within those grant requirements is one thing that I think that we're pushing toward a lot of, of you know, a few of which do have these these data requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I want to think about, uh, let's say. With the again, going back to the adult learning program. We do take data in those points because we know that after 100 hours of tutored uh, instruction through the adult program, you're supposed to have an increase in your grade level. Right. So like after after 100 hours, you can move from first 
like uh, first grade reading to second grade reading levels. Um, and so, you know, what we have these we have these intervals where you know we check in after twenty five hours at each time to see just how an adult is moving along. When we're looking at the in-school work, you know, that is directly related to end of the year. Well, not end of the year assessments, but kind of uh, continue throughout the year assessments. If you have small children, you, you know, you probably understand about iReady assessments. They do one in the fall when the kids come in. They do one in the early winter when they come back from Christmas break. And they do one in the spring uh, before they exit. And usually the spring iReady assessment is immediately after the TCAP assessments. Which were just last months. week. Yeah. That's a whole nother podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, I was about to say, especially but, testing people as soon as they're done from Christmas break. Woof. <laughs> right. And so th- those are other data points that we're connected to because in those cases, the, the Department of Education will say that uh, if a child is, you know, between 400 and 480 on an I-Ready assessment, they're at a basic level. And I think after that, it's like 500 or higher, you're proficient. So, you know, these are the things that we look at with our program. So we have our own data that we capture in many ways. We have data that is supported by the state uh, in many ways. Um, and I think even uh, when we think about the, the partners that we work with um, and, and when we do the, uh, the the work that we do during the summer, you know, that is some information that we capture as well. But to the point around doing this work, we want to make sure that it all connects, that it all makes sense. And, and again, that it has the intended outcomes that we're looking for mm. because we have to continuously think about uh, continuous improvement. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's so helpful for nonprofits, especially nonprofits that have been around for quite a bit. And like you're doing you might be doing the same programs you've been doing for 10, 20 years. And I think having a reevaluation of is this the program we need to continue to do? Is it having the desired impact? Like having some of those sometimes difficult conversations um, it is going to be super beneficial to a nonprofit's work. Um, I'm curious too, speaking of continuous improvement, um, we are a city and kind of an area that has statistically um, measured pr- prison bed projections based on third grade reading levels. And I'm curious what that says about one, us as a city, but also the way that everything is linked together, the way you mentioned before, Jared, that it's not just one thing that can make a difference and move that needle. But I'm just curious y'all's opinion on that. All right. Well, um, um, I always, I like, I, I completely disagree with okay. the prison bed projection okay. in third grade reading. Um, and, and there are a couple of reasons why I'll give like some quick reasons, right? Uh, for one, um, we have to understand like why prisons are built in our country. Like, so that's a whole ev- other podcast too. Yeah. Whole, like, <laughs> yeah. so, so for one, like there are federal prisons that just occupy for that federal, no, for that federal purpose. Like you, you send a certain grade of criminal to a federal prison and those prisons are built, you know, geographically in certain spaces, yeah. you know, you know, supermax prisons, all that. Like they're, 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 they're they don't dot, they, they, they don't dot the landscape. You know, yes. as in like, oh, these third graders are doing bad. Let's build a federal prison. That's yeah. not how that works. Um, Thank the Lord. The other thing is every county in America has a county jail or a regional detention facility in a larger populated county if they're surrounded by smaller populated counties. That's mandated by your like many by your state constitutions. Okay. Every county will have a county jail. Yeah. Point blank. Um, you rarely see city jails anymore because that has become a county capacity. Okay. So when we think about the actual building of jails, 
a lot of that is just worked into state and federal constitutions. Okay. It, it is not really based on these third graders are doing bad. Let's build a jail across the street. Um, that's that, 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 there's it's hard to find a correlation between that. Okay. Uh, now, thank you, you could, for debunking right, that misconception, right. though, because I feel like it's a common <laughs> statistic that's thrown around. Right now, you could make the argument, but it's a weak argument <laughs> that private prisons are built in that capacity. Okay. But even private prisons enter into contracts with local law enforcement to keep a certain number of people in the jails. Mm. So it doesn't really matter if your third graders are doing bad mm -hmm. when the contract says you have to keep an 85% capacity in this jail. Meaning we're going to go out and, you know, I know this is probably not where the podcast is supposed to go. That's okay. But <laughs> no, go me there. Meaning that we're going to inform our police and arrest procedures around the capacity numbers that are required for this private prison. Right. Okay. So all of the talk about third grade reading and prison beds, it, it often comes out as a political talking point. Okay. So when people are like campaigning for an office, usually the law enforcement offices like sheriff, attorney general, things like that, those things come out. But there's really no through line sort of historical evidence that links third grade reading to jail building. That's fascinating, though, because so, I feel like it is thrown around yeah. really regularly. And I'm curious, even especially knowing that if it, there's no like direct through line, what that does to confidence of young people and thinking that our city is impacted by their literacy in third grade. And in some ways it is. Right. But because that is the, you know, the transition from learning to read mm, to, to, to reading to learn. Exactly or, right. You know, and so... But that has to be kind of a shot to the confidence of educators I, and everybody alike, if that's... I would imagine that it, it is, uh, which calls on us to really think about, you know, this is you know, the, the adults in the room, calls yeah. on us to really think about how do we now transform into more asset-based thinking. Like, there again, there are tons of, you know, talking points, you know, you can find them almost anywhere that says, you know, if a kid isn't reading by third grade... They're they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna flunk. They're, they're gonna, gonna fill they're in gonna, whatever. They're blank. gonna drop out. Yeah. They're gonna be underemployed and they're gonna go to jail. Like there's like you know all sorts of graphs, you know, internet and local places that communicate that. But you can simply turn that around and say that a kid that is reading on grade level, their future is full of potential. You don't have to go through you know all of these uh, negative you know deficit points to to convince a kid that they need to read yeah you can just showcase them, all the right? positives you can simply just give a kid something that they like and they'll read it yeah you know and 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 like and i think we miss that you know in adults you know as adults because again you know I, I, maybe just you know adulting is hard and, yes. and and sometimes the tougher messages work adult to adult you know you can <laughs> like you know you can yeah you know my, my my wife can tell me like you need to put away the dishes when you're done <laughs> Um, because that's an adult sort of conversation. She doesn't have to say, well, when you put away the dishes, the house is, no, she doesn't have to go do that with her kids. The, right. Yeah. Like, so there, there's a, there's a, there's a tone that we take adult to adult. And sometimes we shift it over into the ways that we, uh, talk about our children mm -hmm. and, and we need to cut that out mm -hmm. and we need to think about, again, how do we frame this in an asset based way yeah. that inspires confidence in children, but also inspires confidence in us to approach children in these ways yeah. that they should be approached. Thank you yeah, for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about what makes the work that you all do specifically 
challenging in this city or or specifically rewarding or, you know, just talking about Memphis, Memphis's landscape. And um, Jared, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about like what what poverty what is the landscape here in memphis and what makes our city unique compared to other cities around us or other cities in the country and just was reading a email yesterday from mlk 50 kind of about this and i was like oh that's relevant for for um yeah. this discussion but yeah if you could just talk a little bit about yeah i, th- I think and poverty exists everywhere i've, I've lived mm-hmm. in different parts of the world i've i've uh, seen it in developing countries in very different ways than you see it here in the u.s i've seen it in the west coast i've seen it in the south i've seen it in the northeast it it, it's it's there i think what what's harder in memphis i think is that there's and and this is in general i think with poverty is there's not one thing that fixes it right i can't just say hey if we do this boom poverty's gone and we've resolved it right and it's a little eye-opening for me because in the business world it was all about you find the one or two big opportunities and that makes up for everything else you don't need to be perfect at everything you just need to get a couple of the big things really good and you're making money you're doing well as a business right you've got the next product that's really popular or you've been able to save a bunch of money because you found the one or two things you spend most of your money on and that mentality works in the business mindset when it comes to alleviating poverty, it doesn't, because like we talked about earlier, these factors are interconnected, mm-hmm. and sometimes things that are seemingly insignificant can completely sabotage the benefits of something else that seems like it would be much more transformative. And so in Memphis, the I think challenges we have is, one, there's a lot of these factors in play, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like it's just, hey, there's one or two things in Memphis, it's there. There's a lot of things that unfortunately are not working as healthy and as an ecosystem as, as we would like when it comes to helping people thrive. And so that leads to a high pervasiveness then of people who are experiencing poverty. And so you're not dealing with just a small subset of people. It is a meaningful part of the population that is struggling with the repercussions of, of poverty and the lack of opportunity that comes from that. And then I think the other piece is the generational and systemic nature of it. And there's a lot of different political ways you could take this, and I want to try and refrain from that because that's not what I mean. But when you look at this, it you know Sam's already talked about. If you're in a home where a mother has a you know a, a graduate degree, there's a different environment than a mother who didn't finish high school and doesn't have the same level of literacy, and that perpetuates over time. And when you look at the structural nature of that too, right, you see these things where policies and things were made years ago and in memphis that inherently had to deal with racial issues yeah right and if we haven't revisited those some of those underlying things we might just take for granted are actually creating structural um roadblocks for people and things that are impeding opportunities for people or if you look at it from a locational standpoint Mm -hmm. you see that in memphis too that there are certain pockets of the community that have lots of resources and kind of investment and lots of neighborhoods that don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of overlap between socioeconomic status of those communities and in Memphis that also has racial considerations as well. And so I think the challenge with Memphis is there's just a lot, right? It can be feel really overwhelming. It can feel really challenging because it's like, well, how do I do just this one thing? And then with all these other things that are going on, but what I think is powerful is that if each organization is doing what they do really well and do it as best they can, inherently, we're all going to get better at that and provide those benefits. And so that's one of kind of slingshots mindsets here is that we don't have to solve it all at once. 
Uh, in fact, unless we're going to be some sort of draconian, you know, government, <laughs> that's probably not going to happen, right? But we can provide an environment where organizations are empowered to do what they do as well as possible. And if someone's providing literacy at an exceptional level and somebody else is providing workforce development and somebody else is addressing transportation, that's where you start to see these kind of, you know, raising the status of where things are. And then this is, again, where I think the quality over quantity is, is valuable, because if you can do those services at a high quality level, you can change the trajectory for individuals, because this is what it's all about. It's not a statistic saying X percent of Memphis is in poverty. These are people. These mm -hmm. are individual mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, you know, brothers, sisters. And you've got to help those individuals break this, um, this cycle in order for us to see change at a community level. And so I think maintaining that um, human mindset about this too is a really powerful thing. And if it's like, hey, we help five people get out of poverty, that should be celebrated versus saying we're serving a thousand people, but none of them have really changed, right? And it's this idea that if, again, at these individual levels of these organizations, if we're really doing things exceptionally, we can see that change in people's lives and help them navigate what's needed because it's hard. Like we, I look at, I look at nonprofits every day and we have this pretty decent view of the city and it is freaking hard to try and figure out what nonprofits provide, what services and what parts of the city. And this is my job. This is what I do every day. If I don't have the same resources, right, if I don't have the same time, I don't know how people who need these services mm -hmm. are able to find them yeah. and find the ones that are going to be best suited for them. And so we just, there's this, again, this structural piece of it that I think is, there's a historical piece to that. There's also just a the reality that it's not set up right now in a way that works efficiently for the people who need to benefit it. And, and I think the last thing I'll say here is, you know, in business, it's all about the user experience, right? You don't develop a product without going out and doing consumer research and figuring out how do you navigate this? What are features people like and don't like? And you develop these journey maps for how people are going to use your product or visit your website. That's rare when it comes to social services. And so, you know, if we were to take more of that mindset to say, okay, well, how is someone going to access the services they need, identify what they even need, know where they are, all of that, that also makes them, even though they might physically be accessible, practically they're not accessible because it's not set up in a way that's user-friendly and intuitive for people to, to reach and benefit from the services that might be available. So, How do you think that we could, as a city and as a community, um, change that and change this kind of journey map, as you said, to like make sure that things are more accessible because yes, practically they might be accessible or whatever, like they might actually be there, but if you can't find them, they might as well not exist. Um, do you have any insights there on how we can kind of work more in collaboration with each other? Yeah, there's a lot you could do. I, th I think at a thematic level, we can't solve what we don't understand. Okay. And so I think the only way we can really get at this is being proximate enough to really understanding the user experience and being close enough to do that and having them be part of the solution, um, right? It's really easy to design something in isolation and say, hey, this should work really well for all these people over yeah. here. It doesn't matter what level of, of socioeconomic status you are, right? If you do that, rarely does it ever work, yeah. right? Because I don't understand that, right? I, I moved to Africa and lived there for several years and the things that I thought would be really successful from a business perspective it made no sense in that environment. It made perfect sense to me in the U.S., but when I got there, it just was so different, right? And so 
Um, I think a big piece of this is is investing the time to be proximate, to understand, to get that lived perspective so that as we think about what we do as a community, we think about it from the perspective of those who are going to use those services and benefit from it to make sure it meets their needs, not my needs. Sam, um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that either. Um, so when I think about um, when I think about Memphis, uh, I think about um, kind of where Memphis kind of uh, what it looks like, how it how it presents itself. And when I say that, you know, kind of going back to the racial considerations, Memphis is a majority black city that is in the American South. And majority black cities in the American South all have, you know, these horrible histories of the ways that they treated black people. Um, sometimes it was codified in policy. Uh, that policy turned into a practice. And even when the policy goes away, that practice turned into a tradition. Um, when I, so to, to kind of bring the point around is when we, when we have goals that we set as a city of the things that we wish to do, you have to always consider historical practice and, and the current people. And how do you create goals to, 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 to meet the needs of the current people? Uh, to kind of give an example of what happened in a school district and you know, we find ways to kind of, you know, bring this to a, to a city level. Uh, a few years back in Washington, D.C., in the D.C. public schools, they created uh, an empowering men, young men of color initiative because they saw that so many of their young men of color, black and brown young men, were not on grade level. They were over suspended and they were not being considered for advanced placement, international baccalaureate, you know, these higher academic opportunities. And the reason they did that is because these young men made up about 58 percent of their student population. So how can you move forward as an entire school district when you have policies and practices that injure and endanger 57 percent of your student population? You can. <laughs> so when we think about the history of Memphis, again, 63, 64, 65 percent black city, are our policies and practices, which kind of now turn in tradition, turn into tradition, do those traditions limit or injure or endanger your 65% black population. If they do, then you need to change those policies and practices and create new traditions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. In the same way, sorry, JB, that you talked about earlier about focusing instead of a deficit-based and asset-based, I think so often the common language, like you said, in tradition or whatever, um, language matters. And in the same way that that statistic that I mentioned earlier, which shall not be repeated, um, <laughs> isn't true. Then, but if that if that's the narrative and that becomes what people say, mm -hmm. then it doesn't really matter if it's true or not, because that's what people perceive to be the truth about mm -hmm. young people. And so, I agree that it it matters a lot. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of what you were saying reminded me of your um, your TED talk, Sam. Um, Sam was a 2023 TEDx Memphis speaker. And um, in your talk, you talk about literacy as liberation. And when you were talking about the historic systemic racism here in Memphis and in the American South and and literacy as this liberating for it. Can you expand upon that just a little bit? Or? Yeah. So one, uh, the, the, the TED talk was easily the most nerve wracking experience <laughs> oh my gosh. of my life. <laughs> you uh, were amazing. You were uh, amazing. The most frightening nine minutes and 37 seconds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, that I ever did anything ever in life. But um, when I think about liter uh, liberation, so one, there's a quote from Frederick Douglass that talks about when a person learns to read, that person will forever be free. And that's kind of the background thought in a lot of the work that we do at Literacy Mid-South. 
But I wanted to kind of bring it forward with just a personal experience from my parents. Uh, I'll talk about, you know, my parents were the children of sharecroppers and their whole educational experience was shaped by the, again, the agricultural season, which meant that sometimes they didn't start school until mid-September. Uh, and when we think about that now, kids are going back like August 4th. Mm. So yeah. can you imagine like going to school like September 18th no. because you had to make sure that the cotton seeds were planted? I mean, yeah, the, well, the cotton seeds were, were planted uh, and whatnot. And then, you know, they would exit school somewhere like mid-April. And again, kids now get out like April 24th, 25th. So like for my parents' whole entire kindergarten through 12th grade experience, they had this abbreviated school year. And, you know, we talk about an abbreviated school year just happening once for a kid and, and how that endangers their whole educational trajectory. This was my parents' experience for forever. forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all they knew kindergarten through 12th grade. Uh, and the only thing that pulled, I would say, my dad out of it in particular uh, was that he, he was drafted into the Marine Corps. Uh, and after the Marine Corps, he used the GI Bill to go to college. And college, he had to unlearn a whole lot of things. You know, he had he went to college as like as an older man. He was that was like twenty six when he was a freshman, right? And, Ancient, no, right? Yeah, it was like, like when, when he when he told me that, I was like, wow, did you stay in the dorm? He was like, my dad was like married, kid, you know, straight yeah, up yeah. grown going to college. <laughs> well, that impacts it too. That impacts his yeah. Right. And the only thing that got him into college was this piece of public policy. And that's the that's liberation I think about, because a lot of the a lot of the things that create poverty in this country comes from public policy. Mm -hmm. Just on the other side of that, a lot of things that creates untold generational wealth, again, is public policy. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. when we when I think about liberation, I think about in many ways, what are the things that create that opportunity? And I also want to say that, you know, with the with the GI Bill, um, it's not unique like several hundred million white veterans got the GI Bill and this in turn created the creation of suburbs and, and other outlying areas around urban centers. It was just rare for black veterans to get it for a long time. It was, honestly, it was almost impossible for them to get it for about a 20 year span. And so, you know, after sometime after that 20 year span, my dad got it and several others got it. And then we, he was, my parents were able to carve out again, this middle-class existence where my dad became a teacher, my mom became a teacher, and then created all of these, you know, liberative, you know, sort of economic opportunities that come simply just by being in the middle class. Had it not been for that, you know, that piece of public policy called the GI Bill, I don't know what my parents would have been. I don't know what my dad would have been. I don't know what job he would have had. I don't even know what my outcomes would have been like. Mm-hmm. But it was simply because of that, you know, piece of legislation that created a whole different outcome that for me, that was way different from his K through 12 outcome. And then we talk about generational downline. You know, we we're talking earlier before everything started. My son is a junior in college. And for some reason, he wants to go to all the expensive colleges that are out there. Right. <laughs> yes. But he can only think about that simply because of the way that the GI Bill came and interrupted mm-hmm. my dad's life and created this opportunity. And so we so that's what I think. So when I think about liberation, that was that piece that pretty much ensured it. And created just a new tradition through our family because we were able to have my dad was able to have this experience. That is an awesome story. And it really connects, I think, with what you were saying as well, Jared, about one person, one experience can impact so many people. Um, I also uh, thank you for sharing that personal story. And I also want to ask another somewhat personal question of you all, which is you two are both 
um, brilliant leaders and and um, very thoughtful uh, people. And so you could do your work theoretically anywhere. So why why Memphis? Memphis has unique challenges. <laughs> Memphis has unique obstacles. You know, and and so why have you chosen to um, do what you do here? Um. You know, I wish I had like this great grand sort of <laughs> story Sound to go with. Right. Right. Some hot um, <laughs> But you know, I I, I would say that I, I've always lived in the American South. Mm-hmm. Like I've I've lived in Arkansas, Tennessee, Mississippi, and you know, and I'm and I'm good with that. I love it, right? Um, and for me, Memphis is sort of this endearing place because you know, growing up in the Mississippi Delta, Memphis was the closest big city. And mm-hmm. so Memphis is where a lot of memories were made. You know, uh, I had an uncle that used to work. He was a catering manager at a hotel years ago. And so he would always say, hey, he would tell my dad and and, and, my, and the rest of his brothers, hey, I'm going to comp some rooms. You guys come up, bring the kids, and we're going to I'm going to get you some free passes to Liberty Land. Yes. So, so, yes. so, so <laughs> Memphis was kind of that cultural center growing up. That ha- where we had all these first experiences. Like for me, the first zoo I visited was a Memphis Zoo. Yes. Uh, I think the first actual mall with like two floors that I ever visited was the Mall of Memphis. R.I.P. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. I know. Um, <laughs> the first museum I ever visited was the Pink Palace Museum. And so it, it, there's this connection to the city. Yeah, yeah. The connection, opportunity, connection to the city that I have just kind of just from memories and nostalgia. But I also think about, you know, so goes Memphis, so goes the Mid-South. If we don't get it right here, we endanger a whole region. Like, again, what, you know, eastern Arkansas, northern Mississippi, and in and, 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 and all parts of western Tennessee. So it, it's not just Memphis that, you know, that needs to get it right for the sake of Memphis. you got to get it right for the sake of a, a three-state region. Um, and if we're not careful, you know, we could, you know, really mess that up, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so <clears throat> I, I don't have the connection to Memphis that uh, that Sam has. In fact, when I moved here, I didn't know a soul. I looked on LinkedIn and Facebook, and I'm like, I'm surely I'll know somebody here in Memphis. And I, not, a, <laughs> not a not person. a connection, <laughs> nothing. And so um, I think for me, there's kind of two two primary reasons we're here. One's kind of professional, and one's personal. I think on the professional side, opportunity. So I am invigorated by the opportunity I think Memphis has. Um, I've worked a lot in kind of these Rust Belt towns and industrial towns through my consulting career. And you see this pattern where you kind of, you know, you get the boom, everything kind of bottoms out, and then things come back in a different way. And, And I think in Memphis, we're in that uptick of there's all sorts of exciting opportunities here. And for me, I, I love that because it means we can do something about it, right? We can take advantage of some of these things that might be harder to address in different times that we can't address now. Um, and so for me, I'm really excited to be involved in a community that is um, growing, progressing. Um, there's lots of opportunities that are there if we can create access to them. Um, and so for me, it's it's really exciting. And the problem's real, right? You know, this is a meaningful thing um, Poverty is in the city, it's a meaningful challenge. And so I like disruption. I like kind of turning things on their heads and and I get the opportunity to do that in a way that is uh, no longer just about making money for an organization, but it's if I'm successful at what I'm trying to do, it will help lots of people. Um, and And that is really fulfilling for me. And I'm the recipient of a lot of people helping me. So it's 
Um, I know firsthand how that feels. So that's kind of the professional side. Um, on the personal side, you know, we were talking earlier, I've got six kids. It's a meaningful part of my life. My family is. Um, and we've just found a really neat place for our family. Um, you know, I've lived in Utah, Oregon, Texas, Chicago, uh, South Africa, Ghana, and West Africa. I've lived in a bunch of different places. And there's something about Memphis that the community, the people, the, the, um, what it's doing for my family that just really is um, kind of caught us here. Um, I don't know if we caught Memphis fever or whatever you want to call it, but um, but it's just been a great place for my family. And so it's a place that, you know, we want to settle down personally and, and um, have a place that our kids can be. And, you know, it's not perfect, right? There's lots of challenges with Memphis, like there is in any community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want my kids to embrace that, right? I want them to be okay with, difference. I want them to be okay with things that are not, you know, um, you know, in this bubble, right. That it's like there, but it's, yeah, there's hard things that have happened. There's challenging things. You know, my younger two kids grew up in Africa. They were the only white children in their, you know, preschools and things. And they have an experience of what that's like. And I think that's helped them be a little bit more open-minded to things. Um, and so I want them in environments where there's diversity and the many ways that that takes its shape um, because I think that does a lot for developing people to be able to then address the challenges in life in a much more uh, empathetic way um, when you've been exposed to a variety of things and see things that are different from you and that's okay. Yeah. So as we're kind of winding down our conversation today, I'm curious what each of you, um, if you could have one thing that you would impart to our listening audience about how they could potentially get involved in the work that you do. So whether it's donating books or becoming a tutor at Literacy Mid-South, whether um, you have volunteer opportunities at Slingshot Memphis, or if it's just something that may not be directly tied to one of your organizations that you feel compelled to share with some kind of like the average Memphian who might be listening, um, how they can activate on what they've learned here today. Yeah, I'm happy to to start. So I think two things that love for people to do if they want to get involved in Slingshot's mission here. The first one is use the materials we're coming up with. So they don't help anybody if you don't read them, they don't be used. And so our website, our social media, we we share information about the organizations we work with. And we do that to help people know what's effective and what's less effective. And if it's less effective, how can it be more effective, right? What can we do there? And so our work only matters if people use it. And so if you want to get involved, use it, read it, have it influence how you make decisions. The second thing is, you know, if you want to be philanthropic, but you don't have the time to study which organizations to support or feel like your resources are sufficient to make a difference, we have something called the Accelerated Impact Fund that we use that allows people to invest in the organizations that we work with. Uh, and we invest those funds based on the results of our impact study. So the more effective organizations get disproportionately more of those funds, and the less effective organizations get less. Um, and that way, there's a way to allocate it based on impact and based on the outcomes that are, are being done. And so if, if you don't have the time to figure all that out on your own, which I didn't until I got to Slingshot, <laughs> um, and it takes a lot of time to do that, even now that it's, it's my job, this is a way that you can know your philanthropy is making a difference. Um, and we measure it and can tell you that, you know, hey, here's the impact that it had. So last year, for every dollar that was given to the Accelerated Impact Fund, it produced a dollar and 70 benefits across the organizations that we worked with. And so we can multiply the impact of that uh, and we don't actually take any of it. So 
100% of the money that's invested in that fund goes to the organizations we work with. We don't take any for our operations. And so it's a nice wow. way to make sure that anything you give there is having as much impact as possible. So those are two ways that people can kind of get involved in our mission of trying to revolutionize poverty fighting. Right on. Uh, I'll give like three quick ways. So, um, <clears throat> and all these, I think all of these are available on our website, which is leadershipmidsouth.org. Uh, if you would love to have a paid tutoring opportunity uh, working with elementary children, uh, you can go to our website, and I think there's a tab that says Tutor 901. Uh, this is connected to the uh, investment that we received from the Tennessee Department of Education uh, to work with second, third, and fourth graders uh, across um, uh, identified schools uh, in Memphis and Shelby County. Uh, if you would love to be a part of our tutor uh tutor uh, cohort that helps with our adult learners uh the same thing you can go to our website click on our adult learning program um that is typically a we ask for a six-month commitment uh, usually an hour or two per week uh and again if you if you again if, if tutoring is your thing and if you want to choose between tutoring children and tutoring adults we have both options awesome uh, uh and the third thing is our signature fundraiser is literatini Ooh. uh it comes up june 10th uh, and it will be at a novel bookstore. Ooh, yes. So if if you can imagine the uh, the Scholastic Book Fair just with alcohol and 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 just adults. <laughs> oh, um, I love that. You're so, it sounds like my dream. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a it's a you know, martini tasting competition. Uh, so we're gonna have probably anywhere from nine to ten different bars that will be there uh, mixing their signature uh, cocktails for everyone to sample. Uh, and uh, again, and then you could also, if you feel the need to, you could you could buy books while you're there from Novel, uh, and 20 percent of the of the proceeds from book sales come back to uh, our programs at Literacy Miss South. Yay! That's awesome. Awesome. Thank you both for joining us today. To, I feel like we barely scratched the surface. We could definitely talk to you all for a long, long time. But we very much appreciate all the insights that both of you shared today. I'm glad to do it. Uh, very grateful. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Well, I am just so appreciative of Sam and Jared for spending time with us today here in the studio and also for the work that they do in the community. Um, vital, vital work. Um, we had so much more. I feel like I wanted to ask them. I know. Um, so <laughs> definitely go back and listen to their previous episodes. They talk more about their organizations and that. And be sure to listen to Sam's 2023 TED Talk, but that will also be linked in the notes. Mm -hmm. So um, New Memphis has some exciting things coming up. Tell me about it. Well, we <laughs> we have the Summer Experience, which launches June 8th. And do you want to tell us a little bit more about what Summer Experience is, Anna? Absolutely. Summer Experience is um, New Memphis's free series of events throughout June and July that offers college students and interns the opportunity to network, get to meet others, and get to meet our city. So uh, we kick off on June 8th, and you will not want to miss it. Again, these are a free events for college students and interns. So whether you are visiting for the summer and have an internship here in Memphis, or if you know a college student that is just looking for some fun um, and a free dinner, uh, we are the place to be. So mm -hmm. head over to newmemphis.org or newmemphislaunch.com. And one of those launch events um, is Memphis 101. That will be June 22nd. And that is uh, part of our summer experience, but also open to anyone who wants to come. Memphis 101 is a crash course in all things Memphis. It's part networking, part presentation, 
part bingo. <laughs> it's always a really fun time. There will be some drinks and some snacks. Penny Hardaway Hall of Fame, 530 to 730. If you want to register for that free event, um, go to our website, newmemphis.org slash events. Uh, the presentation, the the performance, if you will, will be hosted by Jenny Rad and yours truly. So I hope to see you there. Absolutely. Um, a few other things to note is that our Educators of Excellence application is open and the deadline for that is June 30th. So go ahead and either apply if you are an outstanding educator or nominate another outstanding educator for this wonderful award. Um, You can learn more about that also on our website. And this is also recruitment season. So if you know somebody who is exceptional at what they do and is looking to kind of level up, we have a whole suite of leadership development programs. And again, you can find more at newmemphis.org to nominate and or apply for any of those programs, including LDI, Fellows, Embark, Stride, and accelerate. So we'll see you next week. See ya. Bye. This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com.